0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free
1: on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. That's Audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
5: And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Johannesburg in South Africa, and from the legendary and luxury Saxon Hotel. I'm always looking for inside tips. I'm always looking for stuff that's not necessarily in the traditional brochures. Who better to tell me than the author, journalist, and publisher, editor, and chief bottle washer of the Johannesburg-in-your-pocket city guide, Larisse Tates, how are you?
4: Good, thank you, and thank you for having me on the show. Yes, and of
0: course, what do you have in common with Charlize Theron?
4: We share hometown.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And also the Princess Charlene in Monaco. Absolutely. I tell you, so you're in good company. Most people that I know, right, when they talk about coming to, 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 to South Africa, they're not picking Johannesburg. They're picking Cape Town or they're going up to, you know, to the to the safari areas. They're going to Kruger. But Johannesburg used to be where you always went first because that's where the main airport was and way before you even went to Cape Town, right? What is it about Johannesburg that you could tell me that actually puts you back on the map as a great tourist destination?
4: Well, I think, what I mean, I'll sum it up. A friend of mine once said it, and I think it's the best quote to sum up Joe Burke. If Cape Town and Johannesburg were on Tinder, Cape Town would be the really attractive blonde in the bikini and Johannesburg would be the one with a great personality. And I think... <laughs> what, <laughs> I love that. I think what makes Johannesburg such an incredible tourist city is its uh, sheer diversity. I think it's uh, it's probably... And energy. Absolutely. And I think that comes from such a mix of different people and a mix of people who've arrived here from for so many different reasons, from so many different places. And really, it's still a city where so many people are still looking for gold. And I think that's the energy that powers it. Right. And you have stuff to do at night.
0: You have stuff to do, I mean, all hours of the day. It's
4: interesting. A lot of people say Joburg goes to sleep early. but I, I think,
0: don't think so anymore.
4: Yes, I think that's more people who don't go out a lot. <laughs> and more and more, there's just been this incredible flourishing of new things to do, of new places, of new ways of doing things. And I think even the Joburg of five years ago isn't the city it is today. What's changed? One of the major trends that we've seen and that we follow is that Joburg has become an emerging art city, and I think that's made for a very interesting dynamic to the city. You
0: have a big gallery scene.
4: Big gallery scene. It's become very social, the way in which art is part of the city. So so much so that, for example, William Kentridge, who's one of the world's foremost contemporary artists, has his studio in the city, and you might even see him walking around Arts on Main in Maboneng if you're lucky, and that's someone who is exhibiting all over the world and is at MoMA and is being feted by the Japanese and any other that kind of art culture. I think another aspect to to what makes Johannesburg exciting is that rich mix of history and that kind of collision with what's contemporary in the city. So you have, the city's fairly new. It was only established in 1886. So you have this really interesting architecture in the city that almost in the inner city that stopped sometime in the 80s with no new buildings. And then you have the sheer contrast of Santon, which is just a glass and steel. Yeah,
0: I want to talk about that because you, you talk about the architecture of the 80s. How boring was the architecture? in the 80s and then it stopped because of what was going on in the in the country but now it's booming in terms of the architecture and, and being cutting edge
4: yes I mean there was a point which, in which we would tell people in the guide that our new national bird is actually the crane because you would see that suspended over every part of certainly of Santon and that part of the it's interesting because the city the inner city got a little bit stuck um, yeah they did and that was really largely because out of fear that pre-1994 there was this almost a that things would go to rack and ruin and big businesses fled out of the city, moved to the suburbs. The city took quite some time to recover, but there's been an incredible flourishing of new neighborhoods and of kind of revival of older neighborhoods. And a well, lot we're,
0: of... we're in Stanton right now, which when I first came here, I stayed at a hotel called the Michelangelo and then there was the Hilton right across through. But those were like the first two new hotels in a long time when they were built. Now they're almost 20 years old, I think. And now we have the Saxon, which was really a, a private residence, which evolved over the last 10 years into this amazing boutique hotel.
4: It is an incredible hotel. I think it's also been a leader in terms of creating and seeing Joburg as a leisure destination and actually appealing to get to visitors in that way, which yeah, is very different. If you don't feel
0: pampered here, you're not going to be pampered anywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. This place has really got it made.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. I think Beyonce and Jay-Z were very happy here last week. Oh,
0: listen, <laughs> you also had uh, Oprah and you had my friend Gail King. They are all having fun over here. I miss them, though.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, you can. <laughs> I came about a week here. late. I know. It's a story to of my life. You be have a global citizen. I know.
0: In the old days, I go back to 92 for me when I first came. You know, it was you could feel the, the the tension. You could feel the conflict. You could feel the it wasn't just simmering, it was sizzling. And today it's a different kind of sizzle. But when you know we talk even about this hotel the Saxon, it's a good indication of the emergence of Johannesburg as a great destination now.
4: Absolutely. And I think it's also it shares an incredible history that is part of the city. The fact that Nelson Mandela came here and edited the last bits of Long Walk to Freedom at this, at this hotel. hotel. The um, history is, is amazing. So there's this amazing tie to the city. And I think that's also something that we should never leave out of Joburg's story. That Nelson Mandela walked in this city, worked in this city, practiced as a lawyer in this city, and has left an indelible mark on the landscape of this city. And I think the fact that we had one of the world's greatest leaders here also makes us an interesting tourist destination.
0: You know, when you think
4: about how, uh,
0: I'll I'll try to come full circle on this, this hotel, Really evolved after Mandela because he was here when it was really a private residence. Now it's a boutique hotel, a luxury boutique hotel. But you can't go anywhere in this hotel without feeling him, without seeing him, without reading him, without learning from him.
4: Mm, absolutely, and I think he's, the lessons are. I think the lessons are global. I think that's what also ties us to. I think that there's so many things about Johannesburg that makes it a cosmopolitan city, and the Mandela story is certainly one of those. And just going back to the hotel, what's interesting is there's been this incredibly rich emergence of urban agriculture in the city, which is kind of a new movement. And what always fascinates me about the Saxon is that they, in their own way, have been creating this incredible garden that all the chefs cook from. And I find that it ties it straight back to what's happening in the inner city. The story of people being starting to consider how they eat, what they eat. People starting to be more considerate about the environment they live in. And I think in that way, the hotel's also been a leader.
0: And you know what? Hotels in that regard should be a leader. Because when you involve your guests in that, they get to learn as well.
4: Absolutely. I think that the Saxon really stands out for that.
0: What's the biggest surprise when you have friends from out of town come and visit you about Johannesburg that they're not expecting? I think
4: one of the biggest surprises is the absolute like sheer mix of things that you can see absolute luxury in the city but then you can spend time in the inner city and there's such a grittiness to the city but it's so authentic in what it is. I was thinking today the most the most ubiquitous scenes in the city are really the recyclers pulling their pulling their trolleys across the city that you see everywhere. Um, there's this incredible movement, this constant flow of people and of, of new things happening across the city. I think what's also exciting is is there's just a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of youthful energy, a lot of new businesses all the time, a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of people trying new things and really reaching heights that I think in a lot of societies would be very difficult to reach. And yet in Joburg, it seems like anything can be possible. And I think that influences anyone who's here.
0: You know, It's interesting that you say that because 20 years ago, I never would have said that about Johannesburg. I would have said everything's impossible.
4: Yeah, I, I, would have, I would agree with you 20 years ago. And yeah. that's why I think the city the is a bit like an unruly teenager in some ways. It's got... <laughs> <laughs> I, I always feel like sometimes you need to wake Joy, Joyburg up, especially for tourists, and tell it, clean up your act, get dressed, the people are coming. Um, Although
0: is, I, I would take another approach. And my other approach is this. Most visitors who are coming are truly trying to come either for a safari or... Uh, they want to go to to the wine regions, uh, and my advice to them is: before you do either of that, come to Joburg, start your trip in Johannesburg, and then see the rest of South Africa.
4: Absolutely, I think you—if know, you only went on safari into the wildlands, you'd be doing extraordinary things, but you'd be missing out on that energy that we've been talking about. Well, you'd also think...
0: be missing out on the history.
4: Absolutely, and also on just the people. I think it's the people of the city that make the city so interesting, it's an, and its encounters with those people.
0: What's the one thing you'd like to see changed?
4: One thing I'd like to see changed? I mean, I do often say if I was mayor for one day and then come up with <laughs> different solutions. If you remember one day, nothing would be changed. <laughs> you have a little more time than that. Um, let's think. The one thing I'd like to see changed, I'd like to see all hotels and all people in the hospitality industry really start to also embrace the city and the inner city. I think sometimes there's a little bit of a divide within the city itself, that people distance themselves from the city. I think for the city's grown so so large, Johannesburg's so sprawling, and people almost tend to, locals tend to to live in kind of commuting bubbles where they go from work to home, work to home, and that one place they like to go in the weekend And I'd like to see more of a movement across the city and more of an openness to what's new. All right, you open the door. Where's the one place you want to go on the weekend? Uh, You'll often find me in the city. You'll often find me doing walks with different guards that walk in the inner city. Um, And I'd say on weekends, certainly Saturday, Bramfontein is the neighborhood to be in, which is in the city, um, which has a really exciting Saturday market, amazing galleries, and there's so much activity on the street. And on Sunday, I would say Maboneng is the neighborhood to be in.
0: Because?
4: Um, Very different. On the opposite end of the city, on the eastern side of the city, uh, Maboneng was a a neighborhood that was actually almost kind of light industrial buildings that were repurposed. And over the last, I think, 10 years, it's become... This incredibly rich neighborhood, new businesses. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and
6: flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger.
0: What's amazing to me, having come here for so many years, I first came in 1992, and when I first came, and, I'm, I, and I, I like to tell this story because it, it's, it's reflecting how crazy things were then. When I first came, I had to go get a visa, and uh, they weren't giving out a lot of visas. And I remember going to New York to the South African consulate, and I gave them my passport, and they really wanted to know what I was coming here for because I was a journalist, and they didn't want journalists coming at that time. And and they did a lot of discussion, and they finally <laughs> said, okay, they would agree to give me a, a visa, but they endorsed the visa. It's still in my old passport. I kept it saying, agrees to only write good things. <laughs> Unbelievable! And my next guest would probably rebel against that, just like <laughs> I did. And by the way, I did. Uh, Khadija Patel, who's the editor in chief of the Mail and Guardian. How are you?
3: I'm good. Thank you very much.
0: Crazy, huh? How times have changed.
3: It really is. Gosh, uh, I mean, I was what, I was eight years old back then, ninety-two. Yeah. Uh, the country's but, changed but a lot you since remember then. It all. Yeah, no. of At course. At eight years old, you'd remember. Yes, exactly. I mean, and it once... was. I mean, it was a fascinating time, interesting time, but a very complex uh, yes. time as well in South Africa.
0: And. I mean, you were born in Pretoria, so that's where everything was really rocking mm-hmm. and rolling because that's where the seat of government is.
3: Exactly. So Pretoria, just uh, an hour's drive out of Johannesburg, that's you know the seat of government. But of course, in the early nineties, um, that's where you know the remnants of the apartheid state was really fighting for survival, um, and you know as we now. As we now think about it, South Africa was really in a kind of civil war in those days.
0: It wasn't a kind of civil war. It was. It was. It
3: was. Yeah, it was a civil war. Yeah. Um, it just we've never we've never used those words to describe it, but that is exactly what you know what we were embroiled in.
0: You know, when I spent time in in, in Cape Town, and uh, and I spent time with with Nelson Mandela's cellmate Cadi, who recently just. Uh, passed away. I mean, what was amazing to me wasn't just the experiences he told me about, about what it was like on Robben Island and and what it was like when things started to change. What was really amazing to me was the concept of reconciliation, of of how you could have such a remarkable transformation in such a short period of time based on reconciliation. And when I went out to Robben Island with him, the guys who were his guards when he was a prisoner were all his friends. Mm-hmm. It, it, but it had changed almost overnight, and, and, and some of it doesn't. But it, when you see that up close and personal, it changes you.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I guess you know, that's been the story of this new South Africa, that you know, that's you know, sort of the mythology you know, upon which this nation has now been built. Um, but I think significantly as well, younger people today are rebelling against that idea. Um, because they feel like that idea of reconciliation was far too simplistic and airbrushed over a lot of the schisms in our society. So, well, the wounds
0: will never go away.
3: Yeah. So, um, And of course, and reconciliation is not meant to be um, you know, a band-aid in any way. Um, you know what I look at it like? It's
0: like when somebody who you love dies. Mm-hmm. I-, I like to think, because I don't really have a choice in this matter, it's something that you try to get through but you never really get over it. Yeah, And I think that's really what South Africa is.
3: Exactly, exactly. I think you're spot on. Um, but, you know, calling up a lot of those memories and pointing out the fact that um, the legacy of, you know, the crimes of the past continue to haunt us today um, ends up being a very fraught conversation. Um, because as much as, you know, it took great wisdom, I think, um, in our political leaders, in people like Madiba and uh, you know, that whole political class you know, in the early 90s. It took great wisdom and great forbearance, I think, to get us to where we are today. I think that a lot of young people are not there yet um, and that they fundamentally don't understand why some decisions were taken the way they, that they were. So it is, it, it's always an interesting time in South Africa. Um, you know I keep saying that this well, you know I, what?
0: you're still evolving here.
3: yeah I mean I keep saying that I would I wouldn't want to be a journalist anywhere else in the world because there are so many stories to tell here whether it's political social cultural there is such a richness about this place and about the people in this place that you know your, your work is never done really so um, you know For a journalist, it's a wonderful time, as always, to be at the forefront of actually documenting and probing what lies beneath, you know, this kind of evolution of who we are. Well,
0: let's talk a little bit. I'm talking, by the way, with Katija Patel, who is the editor-in-chief of The Mail and Guardian. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. And that is, from a travel perspective, so many of the people that I know, who are my friends, uh, my colleagues, I tell them coming to Johannesburg and they say, be careful be safe. They worry. Do they have a reason to worry?
3: Look, I, you know, I've had a few conversations with people particularly of late, um, particularly some of my friends who um, went abroad, lived abroad for a few years and have now returned. Um, And they've returned with young families, kids who are going to school. So, you know, your priorities change as well. And, um, at some point, I was starting to get impatient with some of the discussions I was having with these friends of mine because they keep pointing out uh, to how unsafe they feel and how they, you know, the only thing that they miss is the feeling of safety wherever else they were. Um I think that you know because you know on, on on a very basic level, I believe that every place in the world has issues, yeah. right? It has challenges wherever you go, go in the world, um, and so, and Johannesburg's challenges are manifested in a high level of crime. But I think what we often do not understand as well is that the the the. the Biggest victims of crime in South Africa are actually poor people, and particularly in Johannesburg as well. Sure. They are poor people, so often the prevalence of crime and its effect on people like you and I is um, minimal. Yes, right, but it does exist. Of it course. does exist, and I'm aware. But it doesn't stop me from coming to Johannesburg. Exactly, and I think that you can still have a very rich experience in South Africa, in Johannesburg, right? Despite all of that. Um, I think that knowing that perhaps, you know, you've got to take care in some places, um, but also sometimes just be sensible so as about, well.
0: It gets down to common sense. Yeah. And then you can have a great experience just about anywhere.
3: Exactly, exactly. Aditya so,
0: Patel, the editor-in-chief of the Mail and Guardian, someone who's staying and still having fun, right?
3: Absolutely. Riding along now.
7: My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go.
0: She's the co author of Secret Johannesburg. Lisa Johnston, thanks for coming by.
7: Hi, Pisa. Thanks for having me.
0: I mean, every city has a secret, or Sue things that are not in the guidebooks or brochures, things that allow you, just as I just said, to immerse yourself in different neighborhoods and communities and truly benefit from the culture and have a different experience than you might find on a guided tour. Yeah, absolutely. Why'd you write the book and how'd you write the book? Okay, so we were actually... Because you're from Johannesburg.
7: I'm from Johannesburg, born and bred. I've spent most of my life here, Uh, have moved around a little bit, but always end up back in Johannesburg. Um, I was actually, I used to work as a a travel journalist at Getaway Magazine, a local publication, and the... Um, editor there, Justin Fox was approached to write Secret Cape Town. When he'd written Secret Cape Town, the um, publisher then asked him if he knew anyone in Johannesburg, and he recommended me.
0: Um, I Here couldn't do
7: go. it, couldn't do it all on my own. So I spoke to Claire Bell, and we did it together.
0: And the thing is, like any big city, it's not a city. It's different communities in the city, different neighbourhoods. I mean, places that most of my listeners, and frankly, many of my friends, have never heard about.
7: Absolutely, and I mean, this uh, This guide is essentially written for people who know Johannesburg a little bit better. It's not. It's possibly not your first-timers' guide. It's when you know the city a little bit better and you want to know ah, a little bit more about I it. I
0: take exception to that. Ah. It should be a first-timers' yep. guide because because most first-timers' guides I happen to find misleading mm-hmm. and, and, and you get into over-touristed areas. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm going to go for the second-timer guide. That okay. would be you,
7: okay?
0: <laughs> okay, fantastic. So tell me something I don't know about Johannesburg.
7: Well, what I can tell you, about Johannesburg, one of the things that might uh, be of interest to an international audience is that we have got um, Hitler's typewriter sitting in uh, the Absa Money Museum
0: in town. Um, well, you know what? That wouldn't be my first stop. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> hey, what'd you do in Johannesburg? <laughs> typewriter, baby. No, but I, I get the idea. Mm. Now, th- wait, now that you opened that door, how did it get here?
7: It got here because he actually had he had the typewriter, he used it, and then he sold it on to a friend of his who was a Jewish friend who then obviously left the Nazi regime and moved to South wait, wait. Africa. Hitler sold
0: it to a Jewish guy? Absolutely, yeah. This is getting weird <laughs> by the minute. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the minute he had this typewriter, he said, I'm out of here. Yeah, absolutely.
7: Um, you know, I think that's what's lovely about any city, and for me, Johannesburg in particular, is so full of contradictions. You know, it's definitely not what you see on the surface.
0: Right. Um, And then you have different districts, like the Ethiopian district. mm. Tell me about that.
7: So after democracy, um, Nelson Mandela kind of opened up the... Well, obviously, South Africa wasn't a terribly appealing country to the rest of Africa during apartheid. But um, after democracy, Nelson Mandela opened up the country, and it became a lot more appealing to immigrants. So downtown, um, it's now Rahima Musa Street, uh, used to be the medical dental center. It used to be a very uh, prominent kind of medical street Mm -hmm. But it, with the degredi- well, as the city started going down, um, we got a lot more immigrants in, and it was obviously a cheaper place to live. So the Ethiopians, uh, there used to be one little Ethiopian restaurant there, and everyone who came in would obviously come and meet and find out about the city, and, and it's by now the way, turned into an every entire Every big district, city, yeah. every
0: big city in the world has a little Ethiopia. Yeah, we have absolutely. one in L.A. There's one in mm. New York, and by the way, cool food. Mm. I mean, really good food
7: the best food and super super cheap yeah. as well yeah um i think i mentioned before you know uh, i went there once for a meal um there's a little restaurant upstairs called nezis and we shared a uh, injera and all the various toppings i think the three of us had a we each had a beer we each had a coffee and it cost about 160 rand, so just over ten dollars, I guess. Right.
0: Keep in mind that the rand. For those of you who think you can do some really great damage with the U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. you can in South Africa. The rand is at about fourteen to it's the about dollar now. To one, yeah. Oh my goodness! I'm um, talking about great buying power on vacation. Uh, absolutely. I mean, not great <laughs> for you guys. Absolutely not. But terrific <laughs> for us. Uh, what about Queen Victoria's underwear?
7: So that is also another funny little, it's a quirky little museum. It's a private museum in Auckland Park, um, which is a general little leafy suburb uh, close to the university, University of Johannesburg. And a woman there started this, her mother started collecting Victoriana and she took it on and took over the house. So it's this house full of stuff. I mean, it's like top to bottom. So any pr- pretty much any item you pick there that you put your eye on, she will tell you a fantastic story about. But this is just actually quite a boring-looking piece of lace. Um, <laughs> it's a little square. And what happened is that the royalty used to, I don't know if they still do, but they would hand over their their clothes to their servants when they got a bit old and they wanted to pass them on. So the servants were quite clever. They would then take... Her bloomers, you know those old-fashioned bloomers they used to have, and they used to cut it into pieces and sell it as souvenirs, and um, so that somehow ended up at this. It was donated to this woman.
0: So basically, the original Victoria's Secret. Absolutely, I had to say it. Sorry. <laughs> now the other thing about 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 the eating here is I don't really look at it anymore as traditional cuisine because you mentioned Ethiopian. There's also Portuguese.
7: Absolutely. I mean. You know, there's so many different communities, and I suppose it is the same the world over, but Johannesburg is relatively small, so it's quite interesting having these little pockets. So, you've got a fantastic in the south, you've got fantastic, really, really cheap Portuguese food. There's a fantastic um, supermarket there called Riadora. It's got, I mean, you might as well be in little Portugal. Um, you know, there's so many different things. Um, another th- thing that's really nice for visitors to do is there's a guy called Sansa Sandile. He does a thing called the Yeovil Dinner Club, and it's basically just started as an open table where he would have guests, eighteen guests, and cook up this amazing food. And he's this really interesting host. And he's how do you find this place? It's in Yeovil. You can actually Google it, um, the <laughs> Yeovil Dinner Club, and you'll find some details there. Um, and he's just a, this really entertaining guy. He's he's a he calls himself a boy from Soweto. He's probably in his forties. Um, You know, he came to Yeovil when it was still very much a Jewish area and he just fell in love with the food. And now it's very much a West African area. And he's gone around to all these people and he's gotten them to teach them their recipes and how to cook. And he's just very entertaining and he's a really good cook. And there's an underground vault. There is an underground vault. Um, There's a guy called Gerald Garner. He's a real Joburg aficionado, a real... um, I guess you'd call him a little bit of a, a heritage uh, activist in a way. And he's found this, well, he's bought into this underground vault, which was uh, during, the ra- you know, during the gold rush, the, the wealthy landlords and whoever used to have their little security boxes, I guess. And um, so it's this beautifully decorated underground vault. It's until, I doubt it's even got electricity now. Last time I went, it didn't. And he's renovated it into this bar and he's currently having these secret underground dinners. So (laughs) you can go, also an open table, fantastic. He knows everything about the city. Um, It's in the middle of town and there's a number of these vaults are still actually sealed. So they're talking about... There's talk of having (laughs) an auction where you can just try your luck and see what you can get. But uh, currently I think the... The cost of actually getting a locksmith into and un- and do all these yeah. these uh, boxes
0: is a bit, uh, wow. bit much. Yeah. We're talking to Lisa Johnston, the co-author of *Secret Johannesburg*. What's the biggest surprise when your friends visit you from out of from out of town about Johannesburg? Hmm.
7: You know, I think you can't get away from, when I've had a, when I've had visitors coming in from overseas, whatever, you can never get away from the politics and the history of the place. So it often takes quite a lot of unraveling of the of speaking about the politics and the history before you can start explaining things. And I, I suppose it really depends on the person, but I think people find it quite friendly, surprisingly friendly, because I don't think it's got from the outside, that's the perception you have. Right, their expectations
0: respect. were not in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's a nice my, surprise.
7: Mm, absolutely. And I think the diversity, you know, I mean, literally, you you have a first world experience and you have a developing world experience.
0: Lisa Johnston, the co-author of Secret Johannesburg. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you in the underground vault. Thank you. audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com/travelToday to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I first came to Johannesburg back in 1992 and I have to tell you, the food sucked. I hated it, I, I, I survived it, and quite frankly, I didn't come here to eat. I was covering political situation. And when you did get a chance to eat, it was on the run. Uh, Today, remarkably different and pleasant situation. There is a food scene here in Johannesburg that you are not expecting. And boy, are you happy when you see it. And joining me now, a person who knows all about that, Tondo Molokhetti, who's the food blogger and founder of Josie Foodie Fix. Yep. Did I get it right?
5: Yes, you did. Perfect.
0: (laughs) Would you agree with my assessment? I mean, I I know things have gotten better, but things have exploded here.
5: Yeah, I would definitely agree if I just talk about the time period when I started the blog, which was in 2010 to where we're at, you know, 2018, a a lot has happened in the food space. So I can imagine it's a lot, you know, if we're looking back to 1992. Oh, that's the dark dark ages. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: So... Tell me what's changed.
5: So just to give you kind and how of... how it's changed. Yeah. So I'll give you a lay of the land. Is Johannesburg is very much known for the all-day eatery, the steakhouse, um, Greek cuisine, and Portuguese cuisine. So that was kind of what was out there. And
0: the Portuguese cuisine has always been around.
5: Yes. And, ex- and, and Precisely. The Greek. And, and the, the Greek, Greek. Exactly. Yeah. We have big Portuguese and Greek communities who've driven that. And those are communities who historically come from environments where restaurant touring was how the families made money. So, so it was handed down. Exactly. So that's why we see there's a big food scene. And added to that, Italian was also and is currently also one of the big cuisines in Johannesburg and South Africa generally. Um, From a takeout perspective, as well as from a restaurant perspective. But what we've seen emerge, if I talk about the lifespan of Josie Foodie Fix, which is in the last eight years, is the emergence of finer dining in Johannesburg, as well as the emergence of restaurants that cater to the black South African palate. So kind of creating more diversity in the food scene. So for example, currently we have a well-renowned fine dining chef, Chef Coco, who's moved outside of working in various restaurants to opening and hotels to opening his own restaurant that's pan-African dishes. So that it caters to the South African palate but also the palate of the continent. So that's something that's very interesting and much needed in the space. All
0: right, let's talk about the palate of the continent. Enlighten me.
5: So, for example, it's what in certain terms is called nose-to-tail eating. So, using every part of the animal, but also using ingredients okay, from... Okay, stop
0: right there. <laughs> you were doing so well. Oh, my God. You know what? I could think of opening a restaurant called nose-to-tail. You could do it. Yeah. Except the concept of it is driving me nuts. Okay, so... What are we eating from the nose to the tail? Everything.
5: So, for example, yeah, everything. But for example, something, things that are really popular in South African cuisine and across the continent is something called mukhodu, which is tripe. And that's very popular.
0: That's intestine, right? Yeah, that's yeah.
5: intestines and the stomach. There's different parts of the stomach of an animal. So you get different types of My tripe. producer,
0: Dar, is making all sorts of faces right now. It's okay. <laughs>
5: well, it's also popular in Italy, by the way. Yes. <laughs> so. We know. We know. Um, and then there's trotters, which are hooves as well, which is very popular. And then you get something which is from, I've eaten it for a Cape Malay version, which is tripe and trotters curry. So it's items like that. So if you're
0: really going to go full speed ahead, you do both.
5: Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And it comes in a curry with um, butter beans and turmeric. You know what? With enough curry, delicious. I guess I
0: could eat cardboard too. <laughs> <laughs>
5: So, so, it's that type of thing. But, right. for example, it's also taking the flavors from North Africa, like the chimola sauce, um, which is a, a chili sauce. People know a lot about the peri-peri sauce, which is from taking parts of Angola, Mozambique, and bringing in, in, in the Portuguese. In that? So, that's a chili, a chili sauce okay. that's made from multiple different types of chili. And how hot
0: do those sauces get?
5: That pretty depends hot. on your palate, yeah. But yeah. they get pretty hot. Um, if you go to a Nando's, for example, that's one of our big exports um, as South Africa is. You'll get the milder version of a peri peri sauce,
0: which in my case would probably still be a four alarm fire. Yeah, no, well, I think yeah you can it. come on, ask yeah. for a mild. A mild, uh, yeah, yeah. Everything's yeah. <laughs> relative, right? <laughs>
5: it is. It is. Right,
0: but, so that's the 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 palate here, but you've also grown into an international palate because there's so many things coming and so many people coming in. To to Johannesburg as a hub,
5: exactly, exactly, and that's that's one of the things that I I mentioned when I chatted to one of prov- your producers previously is that. That's what I think makes Johannesburg unique in the South African context is the fact that it's always been a hub where initially it was migrant labor coming in, but it's also the financial hub of of South Africa, which means we have to cater to multiple palates. And the example I gave her is we had initially a um, Chinese people of Chinese descent lived in a certain area. In Johannesburg, and so the authentic Chinese restaurants were centered around Cyril Dean and currently still are centered around Cyril Dean.
0: And you can get great Chinese food here. You
5: can, you can. Have you been?
0: You know what? I judge every city by who's got the best Chinese food.
5: So what's happened is Chinese moved out of Suraldine, expanded. And what we see is we've got um, PRON, which is People's Republic of Noodle in (laughs) Linden.
0: I like that name. (laughs) Yeah, it
5: is run by a woman of Chinese descent. So it is very authentic in its flavors but it has moved out of the traditional hub where you'd find it. And it also has some really, really good new type of dishes. So, for example, there's this cucumber salad that might be a bit spicy for you, Peter, but it's chili, cucumber, a little bit of sesame oil. (laughs) If you say Nando's mild is spicy, this one, you know, might This might, might send me
0: to the, the bathroom. For and him. then
5: what we've also seen is the emergence of Korean food, um, Southeast Asian food, Hawaiian-inspired food, and there's a... You
0: have Hawaiian-inspired food here?
5: Yeah, poke bowls.
0: Oh, of course. Well, poke's everywhere.
5: Yeah, it's every, exactly. And it's in Johannesburg, too. So one of the best places to get yourself a poke, poke bowl is Momo Soko, which is a trio of restaurants run by a gentleman also of Asian descent sense. So, you know, we have these things springing up and it's not cultural appropriation. It's run by individuals who come from that heritage right. um, in the Asian sense, not so much in the Hawaiian sense. But
0: I get that. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs> so where are we going for breakfast?
5: So for breakfast, we're uptown in the Saxon. So I'm taking you all the way downtown to Bromfontein. And before we get breakfast, we have to get a coffee. There's a roastery, small roastery called Father Coffee. We grab a coffee there. I have a flat white. Um, I'm a pseudo hipster. So I'll grab a, <laughs> a flat white. Then we'll cross Juta Street and we'll head into post breakfast and lunch. That's run by two brothers. Their grandmother makes the lemonade. She bakes the cookies and they make a affordable delivery. Delicious bacon and eggs breakfast, which is two eggs done easy over. They don't ask you how you like it; they do it easy over.
0: That's the way they're going to do it. Yeah,
5: that's the way they're going to do it with a side of bacon, some roast tomatoes, and it's delicious and it's sustainably sourced fare
0: and it's affordable.
5: Yeah, and it's affordable. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, so that's breakfast.
5: That's breakfast.
0: Moving on to lunch.
5: So lunch, we're staying in the Bromfontein area. No
0: peri peri sauce.
5: Oh well, it depends what you want to oh, eat. Okay. <laughs> So we take a walk a few blocks up to Reserve Street which is a hub in um in Bromfontein that has a restaurant space that also is a gallery called The Artivist. So double volume so wall. Yeah, if you yeah, you've got the money. Of course you've got the money, Peter. So oh, you'll be stop. able to buy art off of the wall. So it's double volume. Currently they have a the artworks of the world renowned Kudzanai who's doing a an exhibition there. And so what you see on the wall you could buy off of the wall so take a walk through the so space so basically
0: everything on the wall is for sale
5: yeah yeah yeah. it is for sale and it is generally african artwork so there isn't anything produced internationally it's done by local african artists
0: and i'm a big fan of, of supporting local
5: Exactly, exactly. And this is run by two former DJs. um, Of course it is. Yeah, 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 (laughs) who have a passion for food. It has an amazing marble bar, but they serve you Pan-African food. So you can try, Dara can try the mukhodu dish, for example, which is tripe, but it's done slightly differently. Something tells you
0: Dara's not going anywhere (laughs) near that dish.
5: So they also offer then a Kenyan-inspired dish, which is Nyama Choma, which is a fire-grilled lamb chop with a side of buravos. Have you heard of buravos? Tell me more. It's the South African sausage, which is spiced with coriander, cumin, generally a beef sausage. It's absolutely delicious. And what I love about this place as well, much like Post, sustainably sourced, free-range fare, but they're giving you traditional food. So with that Nyama Choma, you get pup which is an African polenta, let's call it. I'm sure your viewers know about polenta, served with a the gravy. They can also serve you a beautiful fire-roasted um, soup, tomato soup that's delicious. And they do vegetarian dishes. And then they take you up to North Africa and they give you chamola, chili sauce as well.
0: Here we go. Back to the chili yeah, sauce. Yeah, back to the chili. You're in trouble with me now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, before we run out of time, Tando, you have a website.
5: www.josie, J-O-Z-I-F-O-O-D-I-E-F-I-X dot C-O dot Z-A. And on Instagram, it's the same, Josie Foodie Fix.
0: All right. Tando, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm staying away from the Piri Piri sauce. No <laughs> thank trotters. You for me. No tripe. <laughs>
5: Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
0: Every time we do a show, I always like to talk to the expats because they give me the view that I need. And hopefully the view that you need about what it's like to be here, not just to visit, of course, that's part of it, but also to be here. And joining me now, a British expat and founder of Translating Me and Expats Homes, Hannah Purney, how are you?
8: Good, thank you. Thank you for having me here.
0: And I know you are you're a UK lady.
8: I am from Hertz London, sure. Hertfordshire, just north yeah, of
0: London. Exactly. What why why did you come here?
8: We came here in 2010 um with my husband's job. At the time I was working for London 2012, the Olympics, and he came home one day and said, "Honey, my job would like us to move to South Africa. And I said, Cape Town? And he said, no, Joburg. And my immediate response was, oh are we going to get shot?
0: <laughs> well, I, I, listen, I remember <laughs> the days, and maybe you do too, where carjacking was bad news. Yeah, here. yeah. I mean, people were armed in their cars because they're Absolutely. getting ripped off at gunpoint.
8: Absolutely, yeah.
0: I mean, the crime rate, let's, let's not, you know, let's not mince it here, was tough.
8: Yeah, yeah. But now people are driving around in convertibles. So... <laughs> I'm like, hmm, that's an interesting one. Okay, that means either that Uh, the crime
0: rate's gotten better or these people are deranged. uh, Which which,
8: one is it? I, I... hope to think it's that the crime rates got better.
0: But you're still here.
8: We're still here. So we came for two years um, and absolutely love it. It's been, I think, one of the best places to raise a young family. The weather's great. The people are amazing um, and there's no real commute for either myself or my husband. So we get to spend a lot of time together as a family.
0: But you know, the worst four-letter word that starts with F when it comes to travel is fear. When You mention that even when I mentioned to my friends I'm coming to Johanna they're going, oh, be careful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I look at Johannesburg as any big city. Mm-hmm. There are places you don't want to hang out in Cleveland, but I still didn't stop me from going to Ohio. And the same thing applies here.
8: Absolutely. I would say the whole media is built around this fear. And what I have tried to do is show expats to be mindful rather than fearful. And if you move here and are mindful, you will get to see and experience the best that Johannesburg has to offer. If you move here and are fearful, then sadly, you will spend your time in an estate and you in never really, in a compound, really, I in I a compound yeah. miles away. And it's easier, sure, but you're going to be in and out of here within two years. Now, um, of course,
0: the first time I came to Johannesburg, I had to go to Soweto. I mm-hmm, had to go check mm-hmm. it out out. I wanted to see that township, which has so much of of South Africa's modern history, if you will. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And the guide who I was with was amazing because they're great storytellers. Phenomenal. Right? I mean, that is is one of the things about the South African culture. Everybody is a great storyteller. Mm
8: -hmm. Absolutely. Whether you go to the Midlands and go to the battlefields or whether you go to any of the townships all over the country, um, you will always find the most phenomenal, generous, welcoming people that have that just want to tell you their side of the story rather than the media's story and
0: by the way for anybody coming to Johannesburg now who's never been here you need to go to Soweto anyway
8: absolutely you need to go to Soweto get on the it's very easy now you just get on the red open top bus and you can go there but even better would be to find a local a real local guide that's born and bred Soweto
0: exactly and where else
8: I would definitely say if you can go and get, go and see some local sport, then either the cricket or the rugby, or if you can get to the f Stadium and see the Kaiser Chiefs take on the Pirates, that is... In what game? In soccer.
0: Thank you. <laughs> uh, because first of all, I want to talk about cricket versus rugby. You got to check out the rugby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cricket, but, I mean, you could actually slip into a coma.
8: But the cricket is still, especially of England are here, is one of the best days out. And you just sit in the sunshine, and the atmosphere is always fun. And By the way, if you sit in the, the sunshine,
0: UK, you better bring sunscreen because the South African sun... <laughs> will destroy
8: you it really will yeah yeah it really will but it's a fun day out
0: okay so it's 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 rugby or or football if you will Mm -hmm. um okay that's one thing to do Mm -hmm. where else would I go
8: so definitely go to Ponty Tower which is right next to Ellis Park Stadium and has a whole history in itself it's been bought it's been sold um and It sadly at its worst had a number of suicides. Uh, it was a drug haven, and, and now, now and now <laughs> they have pulled it around, or they're still trying to pull it around, but it's in the very early stages. So it, I think it's the whole, it summarizes apartheid, it summarizes everything to do with South Africa. It, it was once great, and at the height had all the journalists, all the creatives, um, affluent people would go and live there, and then at its worst, as I said, was it was a drug haven and now you can do yoga at the top. There's a brilliant youth initiative that's taking place there. No
0: there's a transformation. Drug Ooh. haven to yoga at the top. <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah, the old downward so dog, dog was, to- <laughs> uh oh, I'm dying. And now it's I got it. Hey, before we run out of time, where are you taking me for breakfast, lunch or dinner?
8: Breakfast has to be the Richmond Cafe, which is in Auckland Park. You know, ah, all the journalists go there. So you're always going to hear a bit of, you'll be able to pick up a few tips or a few insider things. Um, Lunch would have to be 44 Stanley. Why? Why? 44 Stanley because again it shows the transformation it's a cool place where lots of creatives it's all locally artisan South African shops that surround it Um, and so you can meet some local people doing amazing stuff and the food's really great and you can sit outside rather than sitting in a mall or overlooking a car
0: park which a lot of restaurants are doing and you know what I order here you're gonna laugh
8: yeah. A toasty. A toasty.
0: <laughs> I order a toasty. You know why? Because if you order it the right way, they burn the cheese a little bit. Yeah. It's yeah. The, it, what it is, it's a grilled cheese sandwich, folks. But I love the toasties
8: here. Yeah, although the cheese in South Africa is still not ideal. But I yeah, know, maybe.
0: You <laughs> You burn it enough, I'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Now and then dinner. Dinner.
8: Dinner has to be um up in near Pretoria, and it's called the Mosaic restaurant and it's with Chantel and she has just won I think one of the best female chefs globally but it's got the best wine list of any boutique hotel globally yeah, let's and not it forget is South African wine. phenomenal but it's global wine she goes all over the world and sources her wine and it is just it's a true um, she stayed to her roots in the Afrikaans nature of all of her food and it's just phenomenal
0: come fly with me let's fly let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. You know, there's a famous saying that if you can't remember the past, you're doomed to repeat it. And my next guest knows all about that past. She's the deputy director of the Apartheid Museum here in Johannesburg. Wadey Davey, I love your name, by the way. Thank you very much. It's short for... Thank you. But everybody knows you as? As Wadey. So can I call you Wadey? Yes, please. I've been to the museum, and for people who think they know about apartheid or think they know about that, that dark period in South Africa's history, think again. There are so many things to see in this museum that are good examples, maybe great examples, of great storytelling that puts things in historical perspective in a way that you need to see it, especially considering how we're living our lives today, right?
6: Absolutely. Um, And I like what you said about for people who think they know the history. When I started working there, um, which was just before it opened and as the exhibitions were being put into place and so on, I realized that talking politics and drinking wine was not being active in the struggle. I learned everything about the struggle (laughs) over there,
0: you know. Right, because you're learning all the time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, when I first came here, Uh, back in the very early 90s, when things were really crazy. Yes. um, People weren't doing a lot of storytelling then because of fear. Yes. Um, And it was only after Mandela got out of prison. It was only after that we began to hear what was really going on from their perspective. Yes.
6: Um, There was obviously a ban on all kinds of media. uh, Oh, they were worried that I was
0: coming. Yeah. Oh, no, they didn't want me here at all.
6: (laughs) So... uh, a lot of people, even in South Africa, didn't know exactly what was taking place. So unless you were really in it, in the struggle, in the townships, where it was happening, you wouldn't know the extent to which um, the people, the things people were subjected to. And how much did you know about it? I can't say that I knew that much. I knew how it affected me personally. I knew how uh, it affected the people around me. And I, uh, the little bit that we could see on TV was really a lot of propaganda where uh, black people were seen to be barbarians and white people were seen to be the saviors trying to um, put these barbarians in their places kind of thing. Uh, So they had
0: dated back a few hundred years.
6: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so that's the kind of um, propaganda that was put out onto our national broadcast, and that's what we were exposed to. You know, when you
0: think about how you guys have evolved as a society, I'm feeling quite old today because the museum's been open 18 years. That's right, that's oh right. Oh my God, I mean, I, uh, that to me is staggering. So in 18 years of storytelling, yes. you're finally getting the story out. <laughs> and you know what? what is
6: also quite... Um, amazing is that our local because of the museum was open so soon after apartheid ended um i think there was almost a why must we go and see that we live through this so only now people are coming to the mu- local people i'm talking about are coming to the museum and actually learning more than they thought they knew
0: well you know the same thing applied we we did a special last year in rwanda with president kagami and of course people forget that 25 years yeah. ago nearly a million people died in the only James 100 time. days yeah during that terrible, terrible, staggeringly bad period of genocide that you can't even begin to fathom that number, right? It's impossible, actually. And they're finally, at this point, coming to grips with it after 25 years. Yeah.
6: And I think it's when a history is so traumatic um, and you've been part of it and you're still alive while when the change happens, you still have to get your head around the fact that there's no longer apartheid. And so in a way, for the long period of time, you still live your life as though you are under apartheid. And of course, your economic circumstances dictate that you still live in the same areas and go to the same
0: schools and so Okay, forth. I'm going to ask you a delicate question. You said there's no longer apartheid. Do you actually believe that? No,
6: no. I, th- I think the official system has been... Um, uh, taken away, but the social systems, the structural systems, the systemic systems are all still in the place. Economic the economic systems, economic systems, all still in place, and that unfortunately feeds the
0: the system, perpetuates the system. Right. What's the most important story that's told at the museum?
6: I think if you talk about the overall story, it's a story of humanity. It's a story of how a people can rise up against oppression and uh, force a, a negotiated settlement. And I think emanating from that negotiated settlement, they they call it. Um, a miracle. Uh, and I think if you come to the museum, you realize that in fact, it wasn't a miracle. People fought and died for it.
0: That's right. Consciously.
6: Yes. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a miracle. People died, lost their lives, lost their children, lost, lost their possessions, their families, lost, lost their, their, their position, countries, lost their countries. Yeah, exactly. And had to be exiled and a lot of them.
0: And then there's the other word that I learned when I was at Robin Island, and that's reconciliation. Yeah.
6: You know, we've just installed, it took us I think, 10 years to get to the point where we could install an exhibition on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the reason it took that long is because that story is so horrific and it's so filled with unresolved issues um, that we couldn't find someone who was willing to work with us, like a researcher and people were involved and so on. It was just too traumatic and people didn't want to relive that. And so when you talk about reconciliation, the, the process is seen as yes it was good intention, but it didn't fulfill what it needed to fulfill. In other words, not everybody was truthful at the reco- at the, at the uh, commission. not everybody came forward. A lot of stories haven't been told. there's been no um, giving back. and when you give back, how do you value? whose life was more important. So it's a really tricky process. I think a lot of com- countries have taken our model of the TRC and tried to emulate it, and hopefully they'll do better at it than what we have done.
0: But it's still a work in progress.
6: I think it's still a work in progress, but it's not um, not as much as what it should be. It's not It's not been taken to the level
0: that it should be. But if there's any good news that comes out of any of this, and there is... It's that in the process of reconciliation, at least, at least you've reached the point of peaceful coexistence.
6: Well, I suppose you can, you can call it that. Um, Everything's a relative term. It is relative. Yeah. It is relative. I think that we do have. I think that most South Africans have a want to live together peacefully because uh, they've seen
0: the alternative.
6: They've seen the alternative, but I think that because of of. Greed and corruption and so forth, um, it's taking a lot longer and divisions are caused in order to make that um, mismanagement, fraudulent activities work. You have to divide people down below. So because if people are together and they rise up together against you, you can't succeed in doing those kind of things.
0: Exactly. But going back to my first thought about if you can't remember history, you're doomed to repeat it. Yes. That's why your museum is so important. Yes. And that's why it's a must-see for anybody coming to South Africa. Absolutely. Because it's not just pictures on a wall. It's not just newspaper headlines. Mm -hmm. It's true, genuine storytelling that you can relate to. Yes, yes.
6: So what the, the curators of the museum did was to make a decision about how they want to tell the story. Because all South Africans were part of the story. And so how do you tell a story like that and incorporate everybody? So what they did was to tell the hard narrative. This is what happened, this is how it happened, this is where we got to, and this is how it ended. Um, And later on, we then bring in temporary exhibitions that talk about personal stories, little families that were really active in the struggle. And and that's really what hits home. Yes. It really does. So also, uh, just as a stupid little example, in our entrance, we have... um, two sections and in the center is IDs of people who were not color, uh, classified as colored uh, as white or black so they were colored Indians and so forth and my fr- father and my grandfather's ideas are in there and so when I point that out to people they are amazed oh my word you know it's that kind of thing for people who experience that a true learning experience.
7: Minnesota Baltimore
8: Second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place.
2: Right, right. I've been everywhere, man. Cross deserts bear.
0: My next guest is from Zimbabwe, a town that she was surprised to know I've actually been to, Balawaya, uh, and has been in Joburg for the last nine years. And she, of course, is Denise Tassar from the Hotel Saxon. You know, this is a unique, I, and it's an overused word, unique, but this is truly a unique hotel given its history, right? It really was started as a private residence. Yeah. It's where Nelson Mandela finished some of his book. He stayed here. You now have the Mandela Suite in his honor. Yes, What's amazing to me about this Hotel Denise is that everywhere you walk there is a Mandela footprint. Definitely. It's in the artwork, it's in the photos, it's in the walls, it's in the books, it's in the rooms.
2: Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. It's um it's funny you say it like that because uh sometimes I feel like it's even in the air. Um, it's a totally different feeling when you when you come into the Saxon from the time that the gates are open for you and you get these big smiles, you know, glaring at you when you come in and you drive all the way up to the green gardens and you come in and you're welcomed by all these warm people. And I, and I call them my family because we spend 99% of our time here um, serving guests and doing what we love the most. And we get so much joy out of it. And that I relate to Nelson Mandela because he did what he loved the most. I mean, who stays behind bars for that long? For his people, you know, so I, I feel like that's the same way we kind of look at it here.
0: And without sounding like a bad brochure, uh, when those gates do open when you when you come in um, and I, I looked around, you know, you have six swimming pools, you have koi fish yeah. in the ponds, yeah. you have amazing bird life here. It's and then the, the doors close behind you, you're almost in a sanctuary.
2: Yeah, 100%. 100%. With our, with our favorite birds, the hardy does. I, I heard them <laughs> earlier. and, 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 and that, the, Give me that name again. <laughs> the hardy does. The, because they sound like that. <laughs> they, they sound like they their actually name. actually do. It's yeah. like. 100%, 100%. 100%. You're quite right. And, and that's not a sanctuary. No, well. that's, that's an annoying bird. Sadly, not a sanctuary, but definitely an identification to South Africa and You know Johannes you're in stone. South Africa when definitely, you hear that one. Definitely, definitely. Absolutely. It wakes you up in the morning. It's probably the last thing you hear when you go to bed at night. That's right. So you don't need
0: an alarm clock because that bird's going to wake
2: you up. 100 percent. You're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> but you have,
0: because of your status as this hotel, yeah. some rather demanding guests. Sure. What's the most unusual request you've gotten? I mean, you know, like, I need this right now. I mean, you know, people talk about concierges, they don't really understand concierges, mm-hmm. they just think they're going to use them for theater tickets or or, you know, an extra shoelace or they or a cufflink if they it's beyond that. Yeah.
2: So, so definitely, you you get that a lot here. But I think um, I wouldn't call it demanding. Um, I feel like a challenge is always something that's definitely something to be well embraced. And wh- whenever I, I come across a situation like that, I just take it with both hands. And one of the situations that I've I've been in, where a guest literally just looked at me and I said and said, "Well, I need it now." And I said, well, "Of course, you can have it now." You know, he did you he know came it?
0: In... Did you know that he get it now? I didn't.
2: <laughs> I didn't um, most the time we wing it. We wing it and and, and you know what, I and guess. Wait minute,
0: what do they want now?
2: <laughs> so he he had his business partners come over. He was staying alone in the hotel and he had his business partners come over to join him. They're having a good time on the terrace and all of a sudden somebody says, we want to go somewhere far. Let's take a bit of a drive. And his friend says, why drive when we can fly? Someone says, go call the, call, call the concierge because at that time I was the assistant concierge. And I came running and he says, listen, we, we want to go somewhere far. We want to do safari. And this is like nine o'clock in the morning. We want to fly. We want to do safari. We want to do something interesting. Show us South Africa. And I said to him, are you sure? (laughs) He says, yes. So I quickly got busy organized helicopter rides um, took them all the way to Sun City they were out there doing clay pigeon shooting, they did a safari drive it was amazing, they came back and it was the most enriching experience that they say they've ever had in their lives, so that for me was quite special because they loved it it was their first visit to South Africa and they were
0: blown away. You know, the nice thing about South Africa now yeah. is you have the infrastructure that allows you to fulfill that request. Uh, I have a good friend of mine and he's been on the show before, his name is Andy Kluver, he runs Civ Air down in Cape Town Mm-hmm. and he's got access to you know fixed wing and helicopters and fighter jets and you know i said to him one day andy i want to go see the cape mm-hmm. he said i can make that happen i said really so he says yeah get out to the airport and virtuoso was having their convention of the mount nelson yeah and i let them know that i was going down to the airport after my speech yeah and i was going to get into this british strike master jet <laughs> and for five hundred dollars that's yeah. all it was yeah Fly to the Cape and back in eight minutes. Wow. Right? Who wanted to go with me? Nobody (laughs) wanted to go because they wanted to have their tea at the Mount Nelson. Okay. So I got to the airport. I got in the jet. Mm. We take off. We were there in eight minutes and back. So I said to the pilot, I said, hey, Graham, how much fuel do we have left? He said, like 45 minutes. I said, see that the tower is in a good mood. I want to ask him. And they said, yes. So while there were all these virtuoso agents, travel agents, were having their tea at the, at the Mount Nelson, wow. we turned the afterburner on. I flew this thing down to 500 feet, and we broke every window at the Mount Nelson. And oh. the next day, 25 virtuoso agents were at the airport to take that flight.
2: Amazing. So Amazing. anything is possible now.
0: Definitely. But there's Definitely only one problem. I couldn't that. do that again. The tower would never <laughs> let me do that <laughs>
5: Be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63.
0: Every time I come to South Africa, and Johannesburg in particular, I'm reminded of different definitions of what is defined as, as great food and how it's evolved. Uh, I remember when I first came to South Africa, it was 30 years ago, and uh, it was not great food. It was deep fried if you, uh, basically. Everything everything was deep fried, and uh, the presentation wasn't great. The sourcing of the food wasn't great. Uh, it wasn't part of the food explosion. Well, things have changed, and my next guest knows a lot about that. She's the executive chef here. Jane Therese Mowry. how are you?
9: I'm very well, thank you.
0: You know, when we talk about the, the definition of South African food, is there now a new definition of South African cuisine?
9: Well, I guess for myself and, and looking back and looking around at what goes on in this country, I'd like to believe that it's basically centered. To, it's a it's a fusion of all the different uh, cultures that we have in Southern Africa, very much like a Melbourne scene. Speaking
0: yeah. as an Australian.
9: Yeah, no, definitely. Don't hold that against me.
0: I don't. Are you kidding <laughs> No, no, no. Listen, I could say the same thing about Australian food 25 years ago.
9: Yeah, no, 100%. You know, we've really sort of picked up our game. And and I think chefing, the chefing industry as a whole all around the world really has become quite open to the public.
0: Well, you had to up your game because people are now demanding more.
9: Yeah, no, definitely. And it's very, um, you know, it's very easy to see in the, obviously the luxury level of travel as well. When you talk about
0: sourcing, uh, that's changed. And that's helped you become even better at what you do. Because... You, you don't have the obstacles of getting what you need anymore.
9: Yeah, I know for sure. I mean the world really has opened up to, to us all and, uh, and not only in travel but I think in food as well. We've got a wonderful garden up on our roof, and we use that as a sourcing method for our hotel in the city. And okay, wait a minute. What are you growing? So, at the moment, it's very seasonal. So, at the moment, obviously in Johannesburg, in, in South Africa, we're growing beautiful things like tomatoes, every variety under the sun. And I think the the main port or the mo- the main point that we want to make is that everything in our garden is heirloom, so they're original seeds. And can you and can you grow enough to sustain? Um, well, we definitely try to. You know, we've got uh, three different restaurants at the Saxon. Um, we have Grey upstairs, we have Kunu, and then we have our terrace menu. Um, and between the three of us, yeah, we do use and source from our local garden. We Obviously, we can't grow enough for every, everyday use or for banqueting, but we definitely use it as a source for our menus. All right, now I've got to
0: ask the funny question, and that is, I'm so sick and tired of the words farm to table because, I mean, it's, it's overused now. I mean, when you think about farm-to-table, that's the way people started eating back in the caveman days. It yeah, was no, that's exactly right. So what? how has that been
9: evolving here? Well, I just think, I think as an all-round, you know, we, we as humans, we need to be more responsible in the way that we eat. And I also believe that we need to almost, you know, take care of, of our planet and what we're doing and how we're achieving and putting food on the table. And... Is there
0: something now that you've got on the menu that you couldn't have had five years ago or wouldn't have had five years ago?
9: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, times times change and new sort of ways come to the table. And I think for myself, it's about education. And what we're trying to do in Kunu definitely is, is bring the um, sort of heritage, going back to our roots and getting the heritage ingredients and putting them on the table from an African point of view.
0: Now... From an African point of view, that's a brave new world for you too because you've only been at the hotel for two years. So how did you immerse yourself in that?
9: Well, I guess I've been lucky, you know, my parents traveled. Australia is such a far, it lives on the, you know, the outskirts of the world. And as Australians, we, as people, we love to travel. We, lo- we want to see what's out there. So I was very privileged to be able to travel with my folks from a very young age. And Africa was always a big destination. Once every year we went somewhere and Africa was always on that list. So I guess for me, it's it's just education, finding new products, finding the trends, and, and going out there and getting them and putting on a table.
0: Well, I'll give you my Australian experience. Aboriginal grub. I went out there and checked it all out, right? Talk about local, right?
9: Yeah, no, definitely. And it's something that Australians now have really started to, you know, there was people doing it also, you know, years ago, but I don't think they had necessarily the the PR behind them. and. In the last few years, yeah, the native food in Australia has really taken off. And that's the point. It's not
0: just the PR. It's just explaining the dish, right? You have to be able to explain
9: it. Yeah, and, you know... And, and diff- what do
0: you have to do here to that, for that?
9: Well, basically the same thing. But, you know, quite strangely enough, people in this country, they seem to... It's going back to those roots now when you talk about things like millet and, you know, all of these beautiful grains, sorghum. They're gluten-free grains. And it's just actually re-educating the public... So instead of, you know, being, it's about being a bit more sustainable. So instead of using grains like kiwa that aren't necessarily grown in Africa, it's about using the ones on your back doorstep that do the same thing. Like? Like, millet, like, sorghum, all these grains that the cultures use in Africa. But then you have to explain it to people. You
0: have to to educate them as to what they're eating. That's exactly right. Amazing. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to your cuisine Uh, No aboriginal grub for me today, okay? (laughs) We'll leave that back in (laughs) Australia.
5: (laughs) You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.